0: Welcome to the Grounding and Growing Leadership Podcast, powered by Align. This is episode number 14.
1: When we have leaders that we trust, we run through walls for those leaders. We go the extra mile for those leaders. We are excited to go the extra mile and run through walls for those kinds of leaders.
0: What does it take to be a leader worth following? You are not going to want to miss this episode where we continue the conversation with author and leadership advisor, Tim Spiker.
2: Welcome to the Grounding and Growing Leadership Podcast, where everyone is a leader and leadership starts with you. I'm Tara. And I'm Pamela. Thank you for listening and inviting us along on your leadership journey.
0: Welcome back to the Grounding and Growing Leadership Podcast. We are so honored once again today to have Tim Spiker with us the author of The Only Leaders Worth Following and one of the leaders that we want to follow because we think what Tim brings to the leadership table is really important. We are here with part two, and we want to encourage you that if you have not heard part one yet to please go back and listen. But Tim, I do want to start us off today. We were talking about the two principles that through research were really found to be the two key principles For successful leaders and success of organization for the leaders that are there. If you could remind us the why of that information and then break those two things down in a way that is going to lead, obviously, to more conversation today.
1: Sure. So we were measuring people on leadership effectiveness and accidentally found that there were two aspects of leadership that were significantly more important than the others to the tune of three quarters of leadership hinged on these two ideas. And these two ideas are inwardly sound and others focused. And the reason why these are so critical is they create a trustworthy leader. When we have leaders that we trust, we run through walls for those leaders. We go the extra mile for those leaders. We are excited to go the extra mile and run through walls for those kinds of leaders. And so when it comes down to it, trustworthiness of the leader is absolutely paramount when it comes ultimately to performance. And it doesn't matter. We can talk about business performance, but we can maneuver that and also talk about performance in a different sense in a family. It doesn't really matter the structure that you're talking about. When we're following leaders that we trust, regardless of business or athletics or family or education or wherever it may be, we are more engaged and therefore produce better results. So that's why these two things matter so much. So inwardly sound, we break those down. Into the following areas. We talk about being secure and settled, which is essentially the opposite of being insecure. We talk about being self-aware, principled, holistically healthy, and purposeful. When we jump over to the others-focused side of things, what does it mean to be an others-focused leader, an others-focused human being? We talk about being attentive, curious, empathic, humble, And agapone, agapone is a Greek word for being unconditionally caring, unconditionally loving. Then there's one more area that is actually shared by both things, both inwardly sound and others focused, and that is being emotionally mature. And so when you break it all down, these are the things that people need to be in, in my opinion, based on the research that they need to be looking at if they want to maximize their effectiveness as leaders.
2: So Tim, when you're working with leaders, and maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the work you do with leaders first to give people context, you work multiple years with groups of leaders, taking them through a journey with Mm. all of these different elements of who not what is a shorthand for these principles, right? Yeah. Where do you see people making assumptions around where they're going to be strong or not strong? And what usually surprises people about these different
1: principles? I think from an assumption standpoint, I think something that we fight against a little bit is the kind of checklist mentality. So if we're talking about how to be an empathic leader, first of all, we talk about identifying, can I stand in somebody else's shoes long enough to see things the way they see it? Can I then take the step to feel what they're feeling? And then can I finally express that back to them? We talk about that. But In the process of creating process for these things, sometimes one of the stumbling blocks is I could checklist this thing like I'm going to the grocery store. And one of the things that we have to help them see is while yes, there are steps and methods to these things, ultimately it's about the forming of your heart really in so many ways. And so we need to have structure to approach it. But at the end of the day, It's not about checking boxes on a formula. It's about who we are literally becoming as human beings. And we can't shy away from that. We can't think about parent-child analogies with leadership are really dangerous because in most cases, the people following you are not children. So I'm just going to trust the audience for a moment and go ahead and Mm -hmm. use one here. But think about a child that is checking the box with you as a parent versus really working on the thing you're wanting them to work on. Now, maybe if you're in a really extreme case, checking the box is an improvement. Fine. (laughs) So if I'm working with my son or daughter on being less reactive and more patient, for them to be able to say out loud at some point, okay, I'm going to be less reactive now, dad. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that over nothing. But in the end, what I really want to talk to them about as a parent is what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart that's making you so short with me or with your mother or with your siblings? Let's talk about that. And there are ways that we can help ourselves grow in patience and maturity. We want to utilize those methodologies, but really when it comes down to it, I'm not after my kid checking the box. I'm after them really working on the character of who they are. And so I think with regard to adults, we have methods, but we have to keep in mind, we really are working on the heart of who we are.
2: We talked in part one about the willingness. People need to be willing to do that work. And I would imagine that what needs to come maybe before the willingness is awareness, right? Around where they are right now. Would you mind speaking a little bit to some of the ways that you help people build awareness about how they're showing up as a leader?
1: The very first thing that we tell them over and over again, to the point where they're probably tired of hearing about it is awareness is progress. Some people are afraid to say that because what if all I ever do is get aware? And I'm like, I just don't find that that very often is the case. For example, if we're working on being more curious and somebody comes back after a couple of weeks, and we usually work on these things in 10 to 13 week increments. So we don't, we're not trying to microwave this thing. This is a slow cooker. But if they come back after a couple of weeks and say, I had three different instances I can think of where I could have asked a follow-up question, where I could have been more curious, but I just, I didn't have the patience for it. I didn't have the time for it. I didn't have the interest, whatever the reason. And I'm over there going, yes. They're like, what is your problem? I'm like, you you see it. You're, you're seeing spots where you could have been and didn't. And that is awareness is progress. Now, yes, Do I hope by the time that we get to the end of 13 weeks that you're leaning into some of those moments and saying, okay, I can seem right now where I'm more interested in getting to a really quick answer, but maybe I need to ask a follow-up. Do I hope they ask a follow-up? Yes. But there's a lot of cheering that goes on for me around the issue of awareness because it really is the first step. And so that's, to me, that becomes a really important part of this process.
0: Yes, I love how you cheer that person on. We are recognizing it's about the heart. It's not about behavior modification, but of recognizing that a lot of times what shows up is the tip of the iceberg with people. And that tip of the iceberg might look like anger. It might look like deflection or defensiveness or saying yes to everything because they're afraid that if they don't, they'll be seen as incompetent. When the reality is that they're breaking trust because they're not going to be able to get it all done. So as a leader then that awareness piece is I can go and say, here's who I see you as and what's happening now isn't typically you. And I want to just know, is there something else going on that we can talk about? So again, I'm being curious about what's underneath the tip of the iceberg. In a counseling session for me, when people get mad at themselves because they blew up again, or because there's anger, they did this thing they were avoiding doing. Again, I cheer a little bit, not because that thing happened, but because they're aware that it did not to beat themselves up with shame, but to say, there's still something there that's arising in you that hasn't been settled yet. And here's the great thing is it showed up. And now we're in a safe space to be able to talk about it, about what's going on underneath. And this gives us huge clues as to just grow who we are.
1: Yeah, I so love that example because one of the things that we share with folks is that this is not thin work. And if you want it to go well and effectively, if you want to get somewhere, it's going to require depth. And when we talk about depth, we talk about picking up the rocks of behavior and action and looking underneath them to see what is the motive and perspective that's there. And can we be courageous enough to do that? even when the motive and perspective is not particularly attractive. And so when you talk about the tip of the iceberg, to me, you're speaking to this work, growth in this way, it requires depth. You've got to look under the surface of the water to say, oh my goodness, look, that we know icebergs, you just see a little bit and underneath the water is so much more. And are we willing to look there? So I love that. I love that analogy that you use.
2: And it's so important in the work that I do with strengths. Our strengths are really our instincts. And so our top strengths can also become our top distractions or our top excuses <laughs> and, and because it's hard to combat our natural instincts. And so really what we're asking people to do is to slow down enough to be aware of how their instincts are getting in their way. So you talked earlier about habitualizing some of these principles and practices. And we talk about that too, that leadership is a practice. It's not something you are or aren't. It's something you practice. So could you talk a little bit about what you found with the habitualizing? Because we see for all three of us, the work that we do, sometimes people just want to be one and done with training.
1: Yeah.
2: Like I went through the curious module and now I'm more curious and I don't have to work on curious anymore.
1: It's hilarious, but yes.
2: But that is what we think of. And I used to be director of learning and development and at a large corporation of people, oh, they are doing that thing. So we're going to send them through the training for the third time.
1: Yeah. The idea of habituation is that we utilize something that eventually gets into the core of who we are. It's the habits that begin to help form us. And you may have heard that term is first we choose our habits and then they choose us. When we go in that direction, eventually it becomes part of who we are. You use curious as an example. And there are always going to be ways where we can get better and become more aware. One of my favorite things that we talked about is just using the phrase, tell me more about that. That was taught to me by Dr. Mary Shippy. She was an influence in my life. And I'm so appreciative that she taught me that little phrase because it has opened up so many learnings for me. But the idea was first getting practiced with using the phrase. I'm remembering early thirties, Tim Spiker, and I'm 51 right now. So early thirties, Tim Spiker, boy, did he have a lot of stuff figured out. What an incredibly smart and utterly stupid guy that guy. I just, I'm thinking about. It. And Dr. Shippy was the person who showed me that she did a wonderful little exercise with me one day where she said, watch this, Tim. She walked up to me really aggressively and spoke with me in a really strong tone. And she goes, okay, tell me what happened. I had a whole narrative. Here's you and you're being this way. But I gave her paragraph after paragraph about what was really going on. And she's, no, Tim, you're wrong. What I did is I walked up to you aggressively. End of story. And I was like, crap. (laughs) All the story writing that I was doing all the filling in the blanks. And I was completely unaware that I was doing it. And so at first it started with that phrase, tell me more about that. But now over the years, I can tell you that my heart is more turned towards, I wonder what the whole story is than it was back then. I still need to work on it. I'm not perfect in that regard. But I do annoy some people close to me by saying often, I wonder what the whole story is. That habituation over time has led to something that's better on the inside of me than it was 15 years ago. You being
0: vulnerable enough to tell that story, Tim, is one of the things that makes me First of all, I want to go to the topic of being more emotionally mature, which is the bridge you said between Ridley Sound and others focused. All of us think we not only come much more self-aware than what we are, but much more emotionally mature than how we come across. We like to ask the question of what's it like to be on the other side of me? And we may think that we are emotionally mature, or we may think that by not responding, that's a mature stance. That is not always the case. And so growing in that area of emotional maturity, how are you encouraging others in that and actually having that land within them to have the will and the willingness to do it?
1: When we get to our emotional maturity work, it's one of the places where we believe in that space that it's actually important to have a space and time where people are not working on becoming emotionally mature. We think it's so critical to raise that awareness level that we will say to people, we're going to take the next three weeks. And the only thing you're going to do is notice the emotions that are happening. I don't want you to do a thing about it. And people get annoyed at that because they're type A leaders, right? Oh, let me fix this. No. No, I forbid you from fixing anything (laughs) to the extent that I can pretend like I have that much say, but I'll just say, nope. It is one of the hardest things that people do in the work that we do, where it's just to notice. We're going to take three or four weeks and all we're going to do is keep track of the emotions. And then you ask people to look back on their weeks during that time. And they're usually pretty surprised by what they find. And here's another thing that's super fun that goes along with that is that our work in emotional maturity, that, that unit is the highest rated unit that we have out of all of the things that we do. So it's super hard and people fight me on it all the time. And then at the end, they'll say, oh, wait, it was really good. And so we think that it's so critical around emotions to gain that self-awareness first is that we were literally say, hey, here's a period of time where all we're going to do is pay attention and notice.
2: I think we've found in our work, and it's certainly supported in the work that you do, without that emotional maturity, they cannot be the trustworthy leader that they want to be. They're working on everything else and not recognizing that there is something missing. And it's really amazing that you've been able to accomplish growing people in emotional maturity within a developmental journey. I went back to therapy in order to learn how to feel, identify, and feel my feelings a couple of years ago because I've learned to be so disconnected. Our culture does it, my family system does it, other leaders model, just cut those babies off and you'll be better.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: numb, yes. numb, numb is better than feeling. So yeah. getting people to connect with their emotions, what a what an amazing endeavor. And it's not easy. It is hard work. People commit to the journey that they're in, but how have you helped maybe leaders wrestle through when they are tapping out in that area?
1: I don't know, honestly, if I've done a great job of that. What we continually do is to show them the value. And what we do a whole lot in our work is invite, because I really can't mandate this. I really can't say you have to work on this. And we're not even in the intimacy of a counseling relationship. Usually we're working in the context of an executive team, not always an executive team, but we're talking about 12 to 20 people at a time in a room. And I'm oftentimes meeting with those people individually, but it's not frequently, it's not, the frequency isn't high enough that I have that level of kind of intimate connection where I can really do that. So I just think that we just continue to invite people. We continue to point towards the research. We continue to say, here's what's in it for you. If you'll move forward. And to be open-handed about it. One of the things I've learned is you can't force people into these spaces. And so we don't. We just say, hey, there's a great opportunity. We'll make it as easy as we can for you to go down this road. But in the end, it's going to be your choice as to whether or not you go down that road.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering, Tim, we just are finishing up doing a series on generational leadership. And I'm wondering around the topic of emotional maturity, how that hits with the different generations. Because I know for some, even having the words professionalism and emotional in the same Mm -hmm. sentence (laughs) doesn't feel like it works at all. And the fact that you're inviting them into being emotionally mature, when perhaps for them, even the biggest barrier is that, no, this is professional. This We don't do emotional maturity here. Have you come up against that and hit up against that bump with the generations?
1: I haven't really. Not too badly there. Now, it's still a challenging topic, but I would say it's challenging across the board. And I think over time, as this next generation moves into the workplace, I think you're going to have more and more acceptance of that. Although I think we're going to start to look at a very different problem, which is what what does healthy emotion look like? Great. I'm glad you're bringing all the kind of unhealthy, unprocessed, And I don't mean we need to show up buttoned up and perfect, but but there is a difference between healthy and unhealthy emotions. And how do we lean into those? I'm thinking of a story from the book, Primal Leadership, where you talk about how they were shutting down an entire division of the BBC at that time. And one person came in and delivered the news and they were ready to physically harm that person and chase that person out of the room. The next day, they tried to clean up the mess. And somebody else who was in a senior position also came in and just empathized with people, just felt with them the difficulty that your job is going away, but you still have really important work to do as journalists and connected with them. They delivered the exact same message. One person did it with emotional maturity. The other person did it really, I would say, only thinking of themselves, really, like, how do I deliver this as quickly as I can and get out of the room? And in fact, they were chased out of the room, more or less. And so you think about examples like that and say, if you if you don't want to be emotionally mature, you're going to get less from the people that you're leading. You're going to have bigger problems.
2: Tim, you also said something when you were talking about the emotional maturity piece and people's willingness to do the work and seeing the fruit of that, right? We've talked about how this isn't just about leadership that's about who you are as a person. So can you talk a little bit about the impact?
1: Yeah, I've been blown away by some of the stories that we've heard back from people who have been willing to dig in and do this work. I think in retrospect, when I look back on it, it's duh. If you're going to be talking about really important heart issues, and you're going to be digging into those over an extended period of time, of course, you're going to hear over time about stories of deeper connection, not just at work, but at home. And I would say, as people share with us stories of the progress they're making because they've been courageous and been willing to do really hard things and dig into hard work, I'd say probably about a third of the stories that we hear back about progress come from home. And I tell people all the time, that's wonderful. It's gratifying personally, but even from a business standpoint, we're working on the whole person. And so you have a great story that showed up Uh, about a, a relational issue that you had with a spouse or a child and how that is heading in a better direction because you're choosing to be a more curious spouse or a more empathic husband or wife, whatever the case may be, that's great because that more empathic and curious person is going to show up at work as well. And so I'm not concerned with where those initial stories come from. I really love to hear all of them, but I have been really humbled at some of the stories that have come through from home that were just profound and meaningful. And I just count it as a pure blessing that we get to make a contribution that lands there as well.
2: You're really making a difference on not just the people you lead, but your families, and then also the people you're you're leading, their families as well. So the ripple effect that you have when you're able to do this deep, important work around the health of leadership is so critical. I'm curious, what are some of the things you've learned and taken away from the people that you're teaching? Because the best way to learn is to teach, right?
1: Goodness, man, I have been been so blessed by our clients. And as we think forward about how we're building the company, I just had this conversation with one of my teammates yesterday saying that I never want to get to 0% client work because it's just so engaging and so fun and so impactful in what we're learning and impactful for me In my own life, I'm thinking of a really simple example. I've done some work overseas, and I was with an executive team in Asia, and we were talking about attentiveness. And we got into the very simple conversation about checking your phone, which of course is this technology is so ubiquitous, and it's certainly not the only issue with attentiveness, but it's one of them. And one of the folks started to talk about how it doesn't make any sense to check your phone before you sit down to have dinner with your family. I'm just sitting there listening, and he just walked through the logic, okay? So either there's an emergency that you're going to have to deal with, so you know, bye bye to your family time, or you're just inviting yourself to be distracted by a new piece of information, or the thinnest version of it is, I don't have much to do, but i' they see me disengaged before. And when that leader walked through all of the things, even though I was theoretically the person facilitating the conversation, I was like, all right, I got my marching orders now. There needs to be a little bubble around family time that starts not right when we sit down to the table, but needs to start probably 15 to 30 minutes before that, because there's just nothing to be gained by me checking out at that point. It's a simple little example. We're asking our clients to apply these things. And generally speaking, we don't give assignments generally speaking, we ask them to create their own plans. And mm-hmm. so you can imagine the creativity that shows up at that point. We get the benefit of sharing all their wonderful ideas with the next clients. And that's why consulting is an unfair profession because <laughs> we get to learn from clients. Sure. It's, this, is, this should be totally illegal, but it's not, thankfully. So we get to learn so much and I get so blessed by that. Our future clients get blessed by it. But as, as I'm sharing this story, I personally get blessed by it as well.
0: One of my favorite quotes from your book, Tim, and we're going to end here because this is so powerful. I know this person is your friend, John Ott, and he has a quote that says, I'm okay and come what may, I'm okay. And this is a basis for the inwardly sound piece of being secure and settled. And in a world that we're living right now, I don't know that if I were to interview a hundred people, how many of them would give those two qualifiers. Yeah, I'm secure and I'm settled. Can you unpack this a
1: little bit? Yeah. If we go purely on our definition of secure and settled, we talk about being comfortable in my own skin and at peace about what the future may bring. But nobody ever remembers that because they just remember I'm okay and come what may, I'm okay. And that's the beauty of that quote. The really secure and settled leader can say that and have it be true. I'm okay, and come what may, I'm okay. So the question becomes, how do you get there? We're working on the who, not what pill in R&D. As soon as we get it completed, I promise we will let the world know. Only that will never happen. First of all, insecurity, I could go on and on about. And frankly, I'll get really angry about. And it's a character flaw of mine because I have so – maybe it's because of the work I do. I have so little patience for insecure leaders. I just want to slap them. And I probably shouldn't say that, but hey, we're just being honest here because the shrapnel of insecurity is insidious. It's everywhere. And it, oh my goodness, is just so much damage that has been done by leaders who are insecure and trying to work their insecurity out through their leadership. And here's the real reality for insecure leaders. Their team has a mission to do that relates to the organization, but the hidden agenda that is actually the number one priority for the entire team is how do I help the leader feel secure? and it sucks. It's a waste of resources. It's painful. It gets all kinds of sideways. And I've seen it. I've experienced it personally. I've seen it in organizations. It's really insidious. So what do you do ultimately? And I think, again, it's a long road, but one of the most important things, we'll have our folks draw a two-by-two matrix because I'm a consultant, so I have to use as many two-by-two matrices as I possibly can. And we ask them to look at things that make them feel secure and settled, things that make them feel insecure and unsettled. And then what are the sources of those things? Are they changeable or are they unchangeable? And if you think of the upper right quadrant here being things that help me feel and be secure and settled that come from an unchangeable place, not a temporal place. And the example that I'll use is If you're a great salesperson and you say, look, I feel secure because every month I'm hitting my numbers, here's what the stats say, here's what my paycheck says, here's what the leaderboard says in sales, that's great. That gives you a sense of security. I understand that. It's a scoreboard, essentially. And you say, look, I'm pretty good at my job and that scoreboard treats me pretty well. And then I say to that person, is it possible that an economic situation could come up where maybe that doesn't go so well? Yeah, that could. Okay, that's something that's changeable. And even more than changeable, it's completely out of your control, at least the example that I just gave. And so as we go down the road with leaders, we want to challenge them to think about how do I find more and more things in my life that can help me be secure and settled that come from unchangeable sources? And that creates a really interesting conversation because people have different perspectives on what that might be, but regardless of their perspectives, how can we make sure That our security and our settledness is not completely dependent on things outside of ourselves, things that are outside of our control. How can we have some things that are in that unchangeable box that help us to feel more secure and settled? The other things still matter. It's not as if a performance that turned in when you were two years ago, where you brought the big project home and you were really successful, and now you know that you can do that. It's not like that's a bad thing, but there are so many things from the outside that we can't control. So the question ha- is, how can we get more and more of those things in that unchangeable box?
2: That's so powerful. I feel like we could spend a whole other episode just talking about the changeable, the unchangeable, the secure, the insecure. I couldn't agree with you more that insecurity is the most insidious issue with leadership. I've seen myself fall into the trap. In the past. And it's tricky, but important as coaches that we help leaders see it in themselves that they are working out their yeah. insecurity. Tim, we're going to end our two part series here with you with an unfair question. <laughs> All right, great. We've got leaders listening who we really believe they wouldn't be listening if they didn't want to grow. What is one thing they could do today that could start? Now on their own, that would help them improve or level up the who of who they are as leaders.
1: I've got two things at a tie in my head. Am I allowed to say two things? Of can course, I say two things. Okay, good. <laughs> I break my own rules all the time. <laughs> Thank you. The underpinning of both of these things, and of all of these things, I should say, is being willing to look in the mirror. And for some people, that's easier than for others, but it's essential for all of this to be able to say, "How can I be better?" What can I do or who can I become that's more effective? So that's always important. I'll, I'll pick one on each side from inwardly sound and others focus. I'll start with others focus and referred to this a little bit earlier, but it's such a simple practice and that is on the side of being curious. Just what if you were to say twice a day, tell me more about that. And a little hint here, don't do that when you're walking out the door and you don't have time to hear the answer. That's something that many of our folks have found along the way. You do that two or three times. Two things are going to happen. One, you're going to learn things you didn't know when you say, tell me more about that. You're also going to enter into better relationships because who amongst us doesn't respond when somebody says, tell me more about your thoughts. Tell me more about your ideas. Tell me more about what you're interested in. Tell me more about that. Sure. The relationship will get better, which interestingly enough, then opens up the door to more information coming later on. And I don't mean to paint this as just like a complex way to use people for things. It's not that at all. It has to be from the heart. It has to be genuine or it doesn't work. But ultimately, what if you just said, got into practice twice a day, whether it's at work or at home, wherever, tell me more about that.
2: And I think something for listeners, start saying, tell me more before it feels natural. Eventually it will feel natural.
1: That's a really good point. Because if you don't do that often, it's going to feel weird at first. Don't go by how it feels.
0: Yeah. Put a sticky note up on your screen, yes. put it on your car, whatever it is. It should probably be on the refrigerator at your home as well, but it has to be that intentional.
1: Yeah. Good. On the self-aware side and Pamela, you made reference to this earlier, which this idea, I think I first heard the catchy phrase from Andy Stanley, which is what's it like to be on the other side of me? What are the things that I need to absolutely continue to do that add the most value around here, whether around here is at work or a family? What are some of the things that I need to stop doing? What makes me less effective? What makes us less effective? If we just think about sometimes what is it like to be on the other side of me for some people, like, give me a little more. What do you mean? What do I need to keep doing that's really valuable? What do I need to stop or change that's less valuable? If you just add those two questions in and by the way, give them some time to think about it. The point is not a quick answer. The point is an accurate answer. And sometimes we need to think about these things. And the answer to any of these questions, if you're going to be smart, is thank you. You may completely disagree. They might story write about you. They might come up with a, this incredible thing that's completely untrue about why you've done what you've done. So how can you say thank you to that? The way you can say thank you to that is at least you understand where they're coming from now. Even if you don't agree, even if you think ah, they don't really understand the whole story, maybe they don't. But this is their experience of you. And they're sharing that. And for that, we always need to be thankful, even if we don't totally align with what they're sharing with us. So, on the simple side of being more self aware, is just to create a little rhythm with people around what is it like to be led by me? What is it like to be influenced by me? What do I need to keep doing? What do I need to stop or change?
2: Tim, both of those are so good. And we actually are recording a podcast about giving and receiving feedback as a muscle that you need to.
1: There you go. Build.
2: And so that pairs so, so well, it's important for us to continually seek that feedback because we can't just look in the mirror once. It's <laughs> not like I can look in the mirror once on Monday morning and then Sunday night.
1: Yeah. I looked <laughs> last Thursday. I don't have to worry it about it. It was good
2: then. <laughs> So it's we, we cannot thank you enough for being with us. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your expertise and your experience. We feel really blessed that you are one of our very first guests and are here to share with us and with our audience. So thank you.
1: I believe in what the two of you are doing. I think even just the very title of the podcast says so much. And I love that you include the grounded part of it because that's the spot from where we jump. Okay. Uh, I love what the two of you are doing, and I'm so glad that I could make a contribution here today.
2: We will have all of Tim's information, including links to the book, to your podcast, Tim, in our show notes. And If you have other questions and want us to follow up with Tim in a future episode, let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about, and we're excited to continue a conversation another time with you, Tim. Thanks.
1: Thank you.